You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What happened at 284 Green Street in Enfield in 1977? If you believe the made-for-TV movies or the major motion pictures, the place was a dangerous nightmare with either demonic or ghostly powers manifesting with bangs and noises, terrifying demonic entities, and extreme peril. If you believe in the Guy Lyon Playfair account as described in his book, This House is Haunted, that perhaps psychokinetic effects were taking place, and you would experience a variety of floating or thrown items and weird voices coming from children, horrible smells, teleportation, apportation, and a lengthy period of sporadic activity along these lines with no clear cause ever identified. But what if you ask skeptics? Let's find out now in part two of our look at the Enfield Poltergeist case. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. This is part two of our look at one of the most famous poltergeist cases in modern history, the Enfield Haunting. In part one, we talked with primary investigator Guy Lyme Playfair. His partner in the investigation, Morris Groves, has since passed away. Let me remind you of the setting. It starts in council housing at 284 Green Street in Enfield, a suburb of London. The home is occupied by single mother Peggy Hodgson, a 47-year-old, recently divorced, and her children, Margaret, age 13, Janet, age 12, John, age 11, and Billy, age 7. In the book, This House is Haunted, pseudonyms are used and Margaret's referred to as Rose. For most of the book, the weird activity centers on Janet and Margaret, and so there will be little talk of John or Billy in this episode. We discussed the kind of odd occurrences being reported in part one of this, but to briefly recap, the case began with late-night moving furniture, and frightened children alerting Peggy that something odd was happening. This led to the family fleeing the home, and eventually the police arrived. A policewoman reported seeing the furniture move. 
This incident leads to the press getting involved, and that in turn leads to the Society for Psychical Research, a.k.a. the SPR, getting involved. Eventually, an investigation led by Guy Lyon Playfair, who we heard in Part 1, and Morris Gross. Over the course of the investigation, a divide is present in the SPR as Playfair and Gross are open to believing in serious paranormal activity going on, and others in the SPR, most notably fellow researcher Nita Gregory, see the pair being duped by the children. Journalist Will Storr has a very enjoyable book, humbly titled Will Storr vs. the Supernatural. I really liked it, but there's a section where Will looks into the Enfield case and gets an interview with Morris Gross and also with Janet, who's now an adult with children of her own. He tries to find out more about what went on with Anita Gregory and Morris. I'd like to read a couple of short excerpts. I invited Will onto Monster Talk, but as the book's a decade old and memory being what it is, he declined. But I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. In this first section... Will Storr is trying to get in touch with Anita Gregory, and he contacts someone at the SPR to see if they know how to contact her. Not unless you know a good medium, he said. Mind you, he laughed. You probably do by now, don't you? She's dead? I said. I'm afraid so. Well, can I get hold of her thesis, I asked. Ha! No chance, said the man. And I should warn you, if Morse Gross hears you mentioning her name, he'll take your head off. So I tracked down John Belloff, the professor who visited the house with Gregory. I wrote to him and requested his opinion. He said, I am now 83 and my memory is not as good as it was. I do recall, however, that I did make one trip to Enfield and that I failed to witness any notable phenomena. Like Anita Gregory, I suspected that the two little girls involved were up to mischief. Then Belloff complains that Morris put Anita Gregory's Ph.D. thesis out of bounds. I was stunned. Not only had Morris sued a journalist, he'd also taken action against one of his own fellow researchers. Methinks he doth protest too much, says Dr. Mark when I tell him about my worry. It's taking it to extremes, really, isn't it? How did he use a court to prove that it was true? I don't know, I say. I'll have to find out what really happened. Later, unable to find any copies of Gregory's dissertation, he decides to join the SPR and get into their archives. So I decided to join the SPR. Perhaps I thought there might be something in the archives that could give me a clue as to what Anita had said that enraged Morris so much. Eventually, I discovered a series of letters to and from Gross and Gregory. Dated from the early 80s, they were published over several editions of the SPR's quarterly journal. I was thrilled. This was the argument that must have led to Morris's patience finally erupting. I read the letters with a mixture of triumph, fear, and fascination all boiling up in my blood. By the time I'd finished, that toxic slurry of emotions had fermented into pure liquid shock. It was devastating. The longer the polite but furious scrap went on, the more skeptical Anita became. And by the end, she'd become extremely skeptical. Over the course of the exchange, she says in print, in front of all of Morris's SPR colleagues, among them the most esteemed, paranormally curious minds in the world, that the evidence gathered at Enfield is questionable, greatly exaggerated, and ultimately pathetic. In one of the letters, Anita claims that she interviewed WPC Carolyn Heaps, the police officer who saw the chair move. Apparently, she told Gregory that she thought it was the children playing tricks. Anita also records a comment made to her by the neighbor, Peggy Nottingham, on 15th of January, 1978. Mrs. Nottingham told me what was going on now was pure nonsense, and it was kept going by the investigators. In this episode, we'll be hearing from three prominent skeptical investigators of the paranormal. 
Let's get started with Deborah Hyde. Deborah is a British skeptic, folklorist, cultural anthropologist, and the editor in chief of The Skeptic, the British magazine for skeptics who like their skeptical articles peppered with the longer spelling of aeroplane. We previously talked with Deborah in episode 108. We start out by talking about the occasion when Deborah met Janet on a TV show along with Guy Lyon Playfair. Monster Dog. It's, it's quite rare for her to do anything public like that. Um, it was a program called This Morning in the UK. And they wanted somebody who could provide, in principle, a kind of skeptic's approach to poltergeisty stuff. They knew that Janet was quite, she was quite shy and nervous, and they didn't really want someone to kind of tackle her head on. They, they wanted somebody who could talk more um, about the principles of skepticism and why poltergeists probably don't exist. When you listen to uh, a lot of documentaries that feature Guy or Morris, historical interviews mm-hmm. that they've done as well, uh, they talk about Janet being very intelligent and bright. But during the interviews that she's done, uh, it seems like, as you say, she's very shy and kind of vague. I, I spoke to her for a little while in the green room. I, I don't know her personally, but I, I liked her from meeting her and speaking to her. Um but the main thing I would say is that, I, you know, it seems apparent that she's unsuited to public speaking. And uh, she, you know, it's, it's her choice. She's an adult. But I would think that it's probably perhaps that's a part of her life best left behind because it did, I don't think she really enjoyed the program. I don't right. think she enjoyed doing the program. There's the new movie coming out called The Conjuring 2, mm-hmm. which is about Enfield. Um, she's involved in the promotion of the film. I've already seen her... Um, included in some of the trailer interview, you know, like the additional material that's probably going to be on the DVD, that kind of stuff. So, well, this was, I, th- I have the feeling this was why she, that she was involved on that particular interview on this morning because uh, Guy Lyon Playfield was talking about selling the story of Enfield to be made into a dramatization. And it, it later on, it was. And it was a good dramatization, actually. I enjoyed watching it. So, um, it seems that perhaps, you know, on the odd commercial, uh, event she will she'll come up but I, I she doesn't strike me as a person who's comfortable doing it no no she didn't right. seem comfortable in what i've seen but yeah, i think that's often the case uh with the the fellow who's behind the the exorcist story uh and, and many others too they just don't like uh with um Boyery from the jeff the talking mongoose Mongoos, case yeah. as well and she was just very loath to talk about that in her adult years and you, you just wonder if that that's related in any way to the possibility that they might have been hoaxing the phenomena yeah, I mean, there's there's no there's no way of knowing, and also whatever was happening at the time, she was a child, so she right. was whatever happened, it you know, it just wasn't her fault, um, and I don't know what her memories are like, yeah, because yeah. we know how changeable memories are. Really, that anybody who was culpable at the time, I, I would have said, would, was an adult at the time. I think, uh, I think that Guy Lyon Playfair and Morris Gross. Um, read an awful lot of stuff into that situation that they really shouldn't have. There were lots of people who disagreed with them at the time. Um, yeah, there were, there were people from the SBR. And in fact, this for me, this is the methodological problem, was that anybody who disagreed wasn't welcome back in the house. So by definition, you were only going to get mm-hmm. peculiar data. When, when you only had people around who believed, then, you know, that's just not good data gathering. Um, Dr. John Belloff and Anita Gregory uh 
didn't think that, you know, that anything was really going on. Um, Ray Allen, he was a ventriloquist from my childhood. I remember him on the television a lot. He thought that the gruff voice that uh, Janet was experiencing was just ventriloquism. There were all sorts of people who, who just thought that the girls were playing up, including psychiatric professionals. Um, they, they really, they, they said, just go away, leave them alone and it'll all stop. I think if you have a look on YouTube, you can see lots of uh, videos of just regarding that demonic voice. Um, you can mm-hmm. see lots of videos of various training that you can do with your voice. Uh, well, not even with training, but to be able to mimic that kind of a, a growl and a, a demonic voice. It's really something that everyone can do. Yeah, yeah. Guy Lyon Playfair really did seem to think that it was it was something that you would get into trouble with if you did it for a very long time that it was impossible to do it but um no you can practice and the thing about the voice was that it was uh he he, i mean guy lion playfair even pointed out that um bill had a habit of suddenly changing the topic and that was a habit that janet also had and that Uh whenever bill joined in a sing song janet would drop out of it um janet once slipped up and answered a question that was addressed to bill in her own voice so it's you know i think if you were there, what, what would you think on the balance of probability? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's the thing. So the skeptical point of view is, well, which is more likely, right? right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and, Absolutely. and we know, I guess this is the thing that happens in every poltergeist case, or it seems to be a part of every poltergeist case, is that part of uh, one of the requirements is that usually there's a young person involved who's the focus but almost always there seems to be some admitted hoaxing or someone gets caught hoaxing and then that kind of poisons it, right? I mean, it poisons it from a purely supernatural explanation because if at least some portion of it is a kid faking it, why can't it all be? Or, or why is yeah. it the majority of it? Or Well, Janet was definitely caught moving the tape recorder. So, under, And um, Guy Lyon Playfair and Morris Gross admitted that on some occasions the kids were pranking. So then in that case, it's up to a person to decide where the line is drawn. Were they faking all of it or was it just these occasions? And, and, and I, I think it's a bit naive to just assume that it was just on the occasions that they were caught. Um, when I spoke to Guy Lyon Playfair, he said that, do you really think that I could be fooled by a couple of children? But, um, you know, I, I, perhaps he knows a lot of compliant children. I certainly don't. Elsie uh, <laughs> um, Wright and Francis Griffiths fooled Arthur Conan Doyle with the Cottingley Fairies. Right. Um, you know, it, it's not Fox unlikely. sisters. Yeah, it, it's not unlikely that bright kids could fool gullible adults. It's not right. unlikely at all. And you mentioned about young girls being involved. It, it's not just poltergeists. I mean, girls of a certain age, kids of a certain age, but especially girls, are involved in an awful lot of supernatural events. I mean, think think about things like um, uh, the Paris family girls and uh, Tichiba in Salem. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, the Salem cases, the Pendle witches, you know, there's a young girl called um, uh, Janet Davis who gave a lot of evidence against her, her own family. Or the War Boys witches, Jane Throckmorton was a girl who suffered from fits. She probably was quite ill, uh, but she accused her her um, her neighbour of being a witch. And there was this campaign against this woman for three years and um, th- this young girl's sister, sister's took took it up as well and they were all wandering around vomiting pins and having hysteria and there were some very serious consequences because agnes samuels and her husband and her daughter were executed uh, for witchcraft a few years later so it's only really in a modern context that you that you don't get really really serious harms coming out of 
do you you know you've written an article and we'll link to that um for the guardian but could you give a brief summary of what you suspect as a skeptic was probably going on uh, at 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 infield um well <laughs> Or is that too on, like, too, too? No, no. I mean, I think it encapsulated my take on the whole matter would be that there were a couple of sort of bright, feisty girls and um, they, their parents were divorced, which was very unusual in those times in, in that area. I, I mean, I'm the same age as Janet, so I kind of remember the, the, the social environment. And um, divorce was unusual. Her father had left. When he came to visit, he caused stress. So it wasn't it wasn't a happy or a comfortable arrangement. Uh, and there were four kids and they were bright and looking for attention. And then all of a sudden, these, these men turn up and they're lovely and avuncular and um, they turn up and give them lots of attention and lots of time. Maurice Gross, had unfortunately lost his own daughter, also called Janet, in a motorcycle accident a few years prior. And he had been interested in the idea of life after death. And, you know, he, he joined the SPR and that kind of thing. So he was really, I mean, it's really sort of sad to think about it. He was looking for evidence of um, of the supernatural and of life after death. And Guy Lyon Playfair had done work in Brazil on spirit and demon possession. So they already believed in an awful lot of uh, things that we might regard as preposterous. Mm. And then they turned up and these girls lapped up all of the attention. And that doesn't seem at all odd to me. Also, I mean, that was the case in the Columbus poltergeist was there was a lot of emotional needs that Mm. were in some ways being addressed by the attention that came from the poltergeist activity. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. It does. Now, I guess one thing I would be, uh, remiss if I didn't remind our listeners is that any of these kinds of situations, it's important to look at each individual peculiar happening. Then you may find that there's a different cause. Like sometimes maybe it is a child tricking you, or sometimes maybe something, you know, a vibration knocks something down, or, or there, there doesn't have to be uh, a massive overlapping supernatural explanation for everything. Yeah. And, and I think once you've accepted the supernatural explanation, then it's easy to lump everything into, oh, it's the poltergeist. Oh, it's the poltergeist. Yeah. And the other way around as well. I mean, there are some things that you can read in the book where you think, okay, yeah, I just, you know, I I really, I can't say what happened there. Who knows? I can offer all sorts of ideas, but um, I just don't know, frankly. And that's the problem with bad data collection um, is that really people can't go back into it and and offer useful theories because, um, you know, you're just, you're, you're just relying on, on bad information. Right. People who, people who believed in it or only taking, uh, you know, only taking testimony from people who saw things or whatever. So, you know, it's the method, it comes back to the methodology. The methodology has to be really, really good for anybody to make anything of anything. It's so, Weird to me that that they're making this film based on the Warrens' research. When so Dave Schrader did an interview with uh, Playfair on Darkness Radio, and uh, Playfair says that the Warrens didn't have anything to do. He said they did show up at one point, mm-hmm. but that Ed was just interested in making money, and mm. basically he told them to go away. So uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. It's very interesting. Yeah, the other thing, Ed Warren thought that um, the children were the subject of demonic possession, didn't he? Well, that's his, that's his thing. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, there's another thing that kind of occurs to me in relation to 
um, the Enfield poltergeist case, probably a lot of poltergeist cases, is that um, there are an awful lot of child protection issues that would apply now when kind of just didn't apply so much then. I mean, if you have vulnerable children who are showing behavioural difficulties and, and all of this kind of thing, would you want a load of people in there saying that they were possessed by demons or possessed by the spirits of the dead or um, that they had been witches in a previous life. I, I just don't think you could get away with it the same now. No. It's a good point. It's one of the reasons I've always been bothered by Chip Coffee and his children of the paranormal approach to things where, where oh, yeah. kids, first of all, kids make up stuff. Um, mm-hmm. As a parent of three, I, <laughs> they cannot be trusted. They cannot be trusted. So, <laughs> I, and so I, I'm, I would say that the rules of evidence should apply to children just as much as they do to adults. And saying course, that you can yeah. talk to the dead is really not good enough proof, right? Um, mm-hmm. But if you have a low threshold for miracles and a low threshold for <laughs> accepting the paranormal, then oh yeah, it's a it's a wonderful world full of mystery. It's just not one that holds up to any scientific scrutiny. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's one extra thing. Because this is one of my sort of fun areas is um, Janet mentioned once that she'd suffered from this strange experience. And it sounds it sounds just like classic sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis is responsible for so many weird paranormal experiences. It is. You know, I I was listening to um, another not related case uh, recently. And one of the elements was the person said that... um, in the night, something crawled onto his chest and he could barely breathe. And I thought, oh, mm-hmm. but it's so yep. funny because when I hear those stories that even happens in the Amityville haunting. So, I mean, yeah. so, so it's, it's like, yeah, it seems like the Amityville haunting was probably put together as a hoax, like as a, as a money making thing, but it's entirely yeah. possible that, a real sleep paralysis event did happen, you know. Yeah. So that's As anytime can, yeah. those stories happen, I, I'm much more inclined to think that could have really happened because I've experienced it myself and I've mm-hmm. read a lot about it. It's uh, usually just one part of uh, an overall picture, though. And yeah, exactly. So yeah. So I don't yeah. know. It's like if it, it's haunting becomes like a syndrome where you collect all the symptoms and call it a haunting. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and are not able to like identify root causes for everything. But I think the, the risk is it's not just that you can't identify root cause is you stop looking once you've identified it as a haunting. And that's, I think the real risk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Thank you again for talking with us. Yes. Uh, thank you, Deborah. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're it. very welcome. I've had a really good time and I'm, I'm very happy because I've been listening to the podcast for a long time. So it's fantastic to be on it. Monster dog. Now let's hear from Chris French. Chris is a psychology researcher and a very prominent British skeptic who's done a lot of research into paranormal matters with a great deal of passion tempered with scientific rigor. He's a professor at Goldsmiths University of London, and we last heard him discussing the psychology of demonic possession in episode 85. I start by asking him how he first came to hear of the Enfield case. Monster dog. To be honest, I can't actually remember. Um, I mean, ever since uh, I, I was young, I had an interest in the paranormal. Um, it's no secret that I used to believe in a lot of this stuff. And I suspect that I probably heard about the Enfield case way back when I was a teenager. Um, I have kind of read around the case considerably more. Uh, I think I've taken part in at least two or three documentaries about the Enfield case. 
Um, and that's one of the interesting things, of course, that a case from way back in the 70s is still generating new documentaries. As, as you know, there's been a, a TV series in the UK. There's Conjuring 2 is loosely, very loosely, based on the Enfield case. So uh, it's still one of those cases that is around. It's like Roswell. It's like a number of other cases that, that will never, ever disappear. Now, I, neither side is going to win in this in this debate. Uh, it will go on forever. Now, you've been somewhat critical of Enfield in the media. You contributed to an article entitled, I know you don't write the titles, but Five Reasons Why Enfield Was a Hoax. And you, you sounded pretty confident that there's more reason to doubt this case's supernatural aspects than to believe in them. And why is that? I think the, I mean, again, I mean, as, as you will be well aware, um, I mean, I didn't actually write the article. Uh, there were there were quotations from me in the article. Um, and I think the tone of the article sounds much more definite than um, any kind of in-depth interview with me about the subject would have uh, would have done. Uh, I think there are reasons to be dubious about the case. And on balance, I think there are enough of those reasons for us to for it to be not unreasonable to say I'm not convinced. I suspect it was a hoax. Of course, I can't know that, uh, and I know that you know, guy Lion Playfair will be pulling his hair out and, and getting very angry if he's listening to this. Um, but there are a number of very good reasons to be uh, somewhat sceptical about the case. I mean, for me, it is very very important that the kids were actually caught cheating and and they've they've admitted as much but again there's the kind of standard fallback from the believers side that yeah okay yeah they were just kids they they got up to pranks but some of the stuff couldn't be explained and what that basically boils down to is the argument that if if i can't think of an explanation for what happened then it's certainly not the case that any little kids could have fooled me and i think that's you know a rather questionable assumption um I mean, to state the obvious, we can we all can all enjoy watching conjurers in action, but unless you actually know something about conjuring, you're probably not going to be able to figure out how they're how they're doing it. If you can, then they're not very good conjurers. But it doesn't mean they're using paranormal powers. And there is a, there's often an assumption on the part of scientists and on the part of psychical investigators that if they can't think of an explanation, it must be paranormal. And I just think that basic assumption is wrong. You know, that leads in perfectly to another question I have, which is, do you train in magic and deception as part of your work in researching the paranormal? Because I know Joe Nickel, James Randi, Ray Hyman, Richard Wiseman, they all have, and it makes me want to go out and buy a cape and a frilled shirt and a top hat so people <laughs> will take me seriously about my investigations. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I've got a very, very limited knowledge of conjuring. Um, one of my colleagues at Goldsmiths, um, Gustav Kuhn, he, like Richard, and, and like a number of other uh, psychologists, he, he is a skilled conjurer. And so uh, one of the kind of um, interesting areas for Goldsmith's research is the science of magic. Um, and uh, we've got, you know, we've had a number of events, we've got other events coming up where uh, scientists and magicians will get together and do presentations, talk about various issues. And the whole psychology of magic is fascinating. It's a really kind of rapidly growing field. Um, 
But what I do know about magic, I know enough to look at an effect and think, well, okay, I don't know how you're doing that, but I know, for example, there are many different ways to to force a choice where people feel they're making a free choice of, say, a playing card, etc., etc. I might not know the details, I might not be able to do it myself, but I know that conjurers can do it, and they don't claim to be using paranormal powers. So it's not that I am... Uh, a particularly um, knowledgeable person about mag- the techniques of magic. I love magic. It's honest deception. Um, but I know enough about it to not assume that just because I can't think of an explanation for something, that means it must be paranormal. Do you have any thoughts on why poltergeist cases have continued throughout history if they're not paranormal? I, I, I'm thinking here about the mimetic nature of the phenomena. I'm wondering whether it's the activity of the phenomena that's spread virally or if it's the categorization of the phenomena as poltergeist activity that's actually the viral part. It's an inter- that's a very interesting question. I don't really have a very definitive answer for you. I mean, I think it, it's, it's quite interesting when we kind of t- talk about ghosts in general that the 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 what that concept conjures up for most people is something that we've kind of taken from uh, well certainly maybe maybe more modern films have got a a better grasp on the, the kind of wide variety of phenomena that can come under that umbrella of poltergeist activity um whereas i mean the, the concept of a ghost certainly in kind of uh, fiction up until recently would be the kind of the apparition the figure at the foot of the bed and so on now in fact ghostly encounters are quite rare of that kind of a a full form apparition we're typically talking about much milder phenomena things like people going into a room and feeling a sense of presence or a change in temperature or hearing weird noises stuff that's nowhere near as as impressive and in your face as a as a full form apparition, or even more so, the kind of poltergeist activity of objects flying around rooms and fires starting and all this really dramatic stuff. But um, yeah, my, my kind of rule of thumb quite often in the in the um, world of the paranormal is the more spectacular the case the more likely it is that we're dealing with a deliberate hoax. There are lots of reasons why people might end up believing their house is haunted, which, you know, sincerely believe in it, but the, the actual things they report are very, very mild and, and are open to other possible explanations. When you get these apparent cases of, as I say, objects flying around the room, um, fires starting, electrical equipment turning itself on and off and so on and so forth, it's much more likely that you're dealing with a deliberate hoax. Now, the Society for Psychical Research has a long history of really serious investigations into allegedly paranormal activity. Have you worked with them at all, or do you have any thoughts about their methodology and their history? I think they're really interesting. I mean, I'm a member of the Society for Psychical Research. Um, I, I go to some of their events. I've presented at some of their events. And there's quite a wide range of, of opinions represented in there, obviously, they tend not to be as sceptical as sceptical organisations. Um, but there are, you know, they, they, I think they do some very good work. I mean, in the case of the Enfield poltergeist, uh, Anita Gregory was not convinced at all by what she saw and concluded that it was basically the kids that were behind it. It was a, it was a hoax. Um, Clearly, Guy Lyon Playfair and Morris Gross did not share that opinion and felt they'd got very strong evidence to the contrary. Um, but I mean, I think that there are uh, 
serious people who want to try and do the best they can to produce good evidence. I mean, I think they, the members of the SPR typically, obviously, as I said, there's a very wide range of views, opinions, expertise, and so on within the organization. Um, but by and large, those who are kind of serious about it, who take an academic interest, I think, I think they are justified in saying that there is a, there is a serious issue here. There is enough suggestive evidence to justify taking these questions seriously and trying to get to the bottom of them rather than a kind of knee-jerk scepticism that says, oh, well, it's all just obvious nonsense. We don't even need to pay any attention to it. Um, and, and again, within the world of sceptics, there is a wide range of opinions from those who just simply dismiss any paranormal claim without even bothering to look at the evidence and those who take it a bit more seriously and maybe at the end come to the same conclusion that there is no compelling evidence for par the existence of paranormal forces, but are at least willing to acknowledge that it's, there is enough suggestive evidence to say it's a question that should be taken seriously. It's certainly my favorite, or one of my favorite, uh, sort of ghostly related paranormal phenomena. I just, it's the one I would most like to investigate hot, you know, to go in on a <laughs> hot case and take a look, because the, uh, it's the most dramatic, isn't it? I, I, Absolutely, yeah. yeah so <laughs> And you've got this, you've always got this problem with historical cases, which is what Enfield now is. I mean, we can't go back there and investigate it live. It's, it's gone, it's in the past, we can't recreate the conditions, we can't know, we can just speculate. And at the end of that, we'll judge, you know, we'll, we'll come to a conclusion of what we think is probably happening. That conclusion may be wrong, but that, that's all we can do. Uh, until there is another similar case and in, even in those cases as you will well know skeptics are not typically welcome to investigate them it's far more likely that the um, the pro-paranormal investigators will be welcomed onto the scene and skeptics will be kept at bay uh, because usually the people involved actually have some vested interest in it being a genuinely paranormal phenomenon and they're not that interested in boring old sceptics like me and you coming in and saying, oh, no, it's just uh, your central heating is making some peculiar noises, <laughs> whatever else it may be. Uh, and I have been involved with one or two um, ghost investigations. And the, 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 the typical thing that the, certainly the amateur ghost investigation groups do is to always insist that they've exhausted all possible non-paranormal explanations for whatever strange phenomena are said to be occurring. And you, you, you realise quite quickly, they just haven't. You, know? you right. can go and very often come up with a very plausible explanation. Sometimes you can actually prove that that's the explanation for what, they were, you know, what they're claiming. Um, and really, for, certainly for those amateur groups, and again, I'm making a distinction there between the serious researchers who, through the decades have been involved with say the SPR and so on and the amateur groups but the amateur groups they are basically just looking for any kind of evidence any anomaly whatsoever that they can present as proof to their minds of the paranormal yeah there's a uh, I think uh, my colleague and yours Sharon Hill has written uh, pretty academically I guess is the right way to put it about the the lack of uh uh, historical awareness of a lot of the modern ghost hunting groups that they don't know about this rich 
long history of really rigorous, or at least attempts at rigor, uh, in their investigations of this phenomena. And it's uh, it's kind of sad that all their uh, the modern ghost hunters seem to be uh, getting their information from TV shows, which themselves are forms of entertainment, not documentaries. You know, exactly, exactly. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Really? Uh, and, and again, it's, it's kind of very, very naive to, to to treat those TV programs as being a, 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 an objective, truthful uh, investigation because they're just not. You know, they fake stuff. I mean, I've, I was involved in a TV series over here called Haunted Homes. Um, and one of the aspects to that was that actually nobody involved in the program was actually prepared to fake anything, which meant that basically week after week, nothing much happened except <laughs> which doesn't make for the most compelling TV, no matter how cleverly you try to edit it. Um, and, you know, I think that's why we didn't get a third series. But um, sure. it was, uh, but, you know, whereas... Um, it's no secret that uh, some of the big-name psychics involved on other famous programs of this sort were exposed as fraudsters, as hoaxers. They they were making stuff up. Who'd have guessed, you know? So, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, you have answered all the questions that I have prepared this morning. Is there anything else you'd like to say about Enfield? Uh, no, as I say, I, mean, I can see why it has become a classic case. There are so many different aspects to it, and a lot of that evidence that is presented, you know, would look superficially very convincing to lots of people. Um, you know, people get very, very um, excited about the, the idea of uh, police officers as witnesses, as if uh, you know, police officers or military people or pilots, if we're talking about UFOs, you know, all these kinds of things, the, the assumption that those people are somehow immune to the power of suggestion or to misperceptions of other kind. And it's just nonsense. It's just not true. We can show... And we have shown in our own research and the work of many other psychologists that it's relatively easy in a minority, a sizable minority of people to 
And it just simply by the power of suggestion get them to think they've seen things and heard things that just aren't actually there. So, you know, the fact that we can demonstrate that, I think it's important that sceptics actually try and produce evidence in favour of their counter-explanations wherever possible. And so, you know, rigorous demonstrations of the power of suggestion, I think, is much more compelling evidence than just saying, you know, just pulling these explanations out of the air. We've actually shown that these things are true. So, um, at the end of the day, as I say, we cannot... I mean, it'd be wrong to uh, say, oh, no, we can be 100% sure that there was no such thing as a poltergeist and there were no poltergeist activity at Enfield. We can't say that. But what we can do is form a judgment on the basis of the evidence as we see it, and the debate will continue. So I, you just made me think of one more question. The, there's a facet of poltergeist cases, or at least the modern ones, that seems to be universal, which is that in virtually every modern poltergeist case that I've seen investigated by by both skeptics and believers, there's been at least one or two uh, incidents where they've caught someone cheating. Now, to skeptics, that sort of disqualifies the entire case. Um, would that be true for scientific research? If someone fudged the data uh, a little bit, would that necessarily... Oh, yeah. Now, you're getting into a huge area here, which I'm quite happy to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> it's a massive area. And it's one that's really been in the spotlight in the last few years, particularly in psychology. But I think the lessons apply to other scientific fields as well. And what we're, what we're talking about here is any scientist who actually deliberately just fakes data, well, that's the worst sin you can commit in science. And so that just, you know, basically, to my mind, means, right, we can't trust anything that you've ever published. You know, you are... You, <laughs> Wakefield, excuse me. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, I mean, and, and that is... Now, but what I think is a far more insidious problem, which people are, really, are getting to grips with now, or beginning to appreciate, is... The cases which I think affect a far larger proportion of scientists, uh, and that is not fully appreciating how even kind of what might appear to be fairly trivial departures from best practice can actually lead to a, a very, very large number of spuriously significant results. Um, and there's all kinds of things like... Um, the pressure to publish in high-impact journals that have a very high rejection rate, so they're only interested in publishing new findings. They're not interested in publishing replications or negative results. And the thing is that those negative results are much more common than, than is generally appreciated. And so it's, it's actually misrepresenting the state of research you, you go to any, you know, top psychology journal and it will be full of positive, significant results and you get the impression that these are robust, reliable, easily replicable effects and often they're not. Um, and we're beginning to appreciate why because uh, all of these, yeah, I, I won't, as I say, I could go on for that for hours and I'm tempted to, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's those minor little departures, things like, oh, well, I did the analysis of my results the way I said I was going to do it and I didn't get the result but then I realised if I transformed the data the effect does come out it doesn't seem to be the biggest crime in the world but actually you're giving yourself the benefit of the doubt in a number of different decision points and really that stacks up in terms of inflating the chances that you'll, you'll come up with something that you can write up 
Um, and it's, as I say, you know, we're, we're beginning to appreciate how serious a problem that is. It's not out and out fraud in the sense we typically understand it, but it's actually probably, possibly, arguably even more uh, damaging to the scientific enterprise. Yes, and I, unfortunately, I think the people who were anti-science are looking at these uh, patterns and, and seeing it as uh, the failure of science in general. But I, I, I suspect this will be statistical stuff that will shake out in the long run, but the long run might be 100 years. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, at least I mean, I mean science, yeah, the scientific method is the only approach that actually would, would try to take account of these human biases and eliminate them as far as that is possible. Right. It's that self-correction, the fact that it finds mistakes and then recognizes them, tries to fix them, that really makes it different. Um, it's just unsatisfactory to people who would like to have certainty, and certainty is not really a, a currency we, we uh, trade in. So. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for your time, Chris. I really, really appreciate it. You're one of my heroes in this field, and uh, it's just really great to talk to you. That's very kind, and the feeling is mutual. <laughs> okay, take care. Monster Talk. Joe Nickel may be the world's only full-time professional scientific and skeptical paranormal investigator. He's been on Monster Talk several times and is a tireless researcher to matters that touch the interests of our listeners. We'll put a lot of links to Joe's robust body of work in the show notes. Monster Talk. Do you recall when you first heard about the infield poltergeist case? I don't really. It's been many, many years ago because it was in advance of my book, Entities. I, I gave a sort of a short summary in that book. So, I've, you know, it's something I've been aware of for many years. And I know that um, Milburn Christopher, I, I'm trying to remember if it's in his book, ESP Sears and Psychics, um, but Milburn Christopher, the magician who was there for for a brief time, and you know, and concluded that little Janet was was a very very bright and clever and tricky girl. Christopher was a big influence on me. He was he was uh, his book that I mentioned is uh, sort of a minor classic, and one of the few books, along with James Randi's books, that when I started being a paranormal investigator was available. There really wasn't a lot in the way of, you know, training seminars and so forth in, in those days. But Christopher was uh, had done something with that, and I, I think that might have been one of my intros, was reading what wherever he published it, his account. Yeah, I'd like to read his. Playfair writes about it briefly, uh, about a couple of pages. I was just rereading it last night. And he, Playfair says, it almost seemed that the poltergeist was out to incriminate her, that being Janet, by producing third-rate phenomena in the presence of a first-rate observer. It's pretty typical of Playfair, I think. You know, Playfair is an odd guy in my, in my estimation. He's one of the most credulous people maybe in the history of the paranormal. He's just certainly among the very, very, very credulous people. He's he's typical of a type that has clearly started with some idea, um, an, an answer, if you will, a, a, a result, and then is working backwards to the evidence. That is clearly not the way to proceed, not the way I conduct my work, not the scientific approach where you would go 
someplace and you would look at the evidence, you would sort out the best evidence from the worst evidence, and you would try to let the evidence lead you to a correct answer, like it or not. And what Playfair is doing is really just the opposite of that. It's uh, You can see it everywhere. You come up with a reasonable explanation, a reasonable hypothesis, and, and he will just turn that upside down and find some some explanation for how well it might look like that but the the entity is trying to 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 trick us and and uh um, make fools of us and so forth and he just he is so willing to do that throughout his book that he loses pretty much all credibility in my eye. You've also got some background as a magician. Does that impact how you would uh, look at the things that were going on here? It sure does. I I think that the, and, and, and you know, I mentioned Milburn Christopher and I mentioned James Randi. Uh, the people who have gone after the paranormal from, you know, the 1960s to today, who've, who've really been able to look at at people doing tricks, say, specifically, I have been magicians. And that's not to say that all magicians are skeptical or uh, investigators, but of the best, I would put it this way, of the best investigators, the ones who seem to have uh, been, been uh, able to investigate human beings doing tricks, whether Uri Geller or or James Heydrich, or whomever, um, magicians have been the best of those. And it's not uh, accidental that that's so. Who knows deception? Who knows tricks? Who will get right in your face and do something so smooth that you will say, I watched every move. There's just no way he could have hid that in his hands. It was absolutely just, I, I witnessed it. And that that's the person, kind of on the theory of uh, the old saying, set a thief to catch a thief, maybe you set a, a trickster to catch a trickster. I know that in my own work, my background as a magician has been absolutely invaluable. And not only in catching people and knowing, you know, specific tricks. You watch someone say, um, when I caught a psychic a medium at uh, Camp Chesterfield doing a billet reading trick, and I know exactly, because I know several ways of doing that trick, and I was on to him in just in no time at all as to exactly which method he was doing, and I set a trap for him, and he fell into it, and I, I know that he was doing a particular trick. It's not just that, but the magician's mind is such that we can... You know, ideally, the magician also sees how people are fooled by illusions, even if they are inadvertent. And you know me, I've talked before about things like footsteps on the stairs at McKinsey House and how they were really coming from a real staircase next door, and it was a, an illusion. It, was, it wasn't intentional at all. Or how people will see a lake monster uh, that in fact is three or four otters swimming in a line. 
And there are a number of these, and I think the magician is more inclined to to pick those out because he's trained to see illusions and to know how illusions work and how, yes, you you saw just what you said you did, but here's the rest of that story. Sure. Now, in, in your career, have you had much interaction with the Society for Psychical Research? No, I haven't. Um Okay. You no, know, I, I I find them an interesting not, group because they they seem to be a mixture of of people who are strongly believe and who are strongly skeptical, and I I, I just wonder what those meetings are like. I <laughs> but uh, I I know that it, uh, it, at some point during the investigation, uh, Playfair and Gross were at odds with other SPR investigators who who felt that they were being duped and had gotten too close to the family. Um, but uh, I didn't know if that right. The the SPR is, uh, you know, has done some debunking of people like uh, Hans Holzer and others. I mean, they're not uh, just credulous uh, types who who uh, always fall into line. But I don't. I I've not worked with them or anything. I've I've uh, the nature of my work, I guess, is that I probably just that wouldn't happen. Very few people, you know, get in into a house where something like that is going on in its active phase. Uh, Milburn Christopher did it at, uh, at Enfield, but you remember Randy was rebuffed um, in the Tina Resch case by Tina Resch's parents in that poltergeist case. And one could just go down the list at the times that Skeptics have not been welcomed in for one reason or another. At one point, Playfair wrote, it was becoming apparent that paranormal events only took place in the presence of people who believed them to be possible. But it, it seems when he says that he's not implying that, that people who uh, are skeptical interpret the evidence differently. Instead, it seems like he's saying that these skeptics are preventing the paranormal from happening. And I've heard that kind of claim leveled at Randy, some people calling him an anti-psychic. Well, that's absolutely, uh, absolutely been hurled at Randy many, many, many times. That, uh, you know, as soon as the magician comes in, and it's not just Randy, I mean, this is well well established throughout the world of the paranormal particularly where you have somebody performing somebody doing something you know not necessarily flying saucer cases or ghosts but where you have some psychic or someone with a purported ability because uh, remember Dr. Ryan's famous ESP experiments at Duke University and they had people who were occasionally were really getting just incredible scores on the guessing as to the the cards what the cards were as they you know recorded uh, a run of, of ESP card tests and there there are instances there that when skeptics came in particularly one instance I remember where a magician came in and this phenomenal guy was scoring really phenomenally high in ESP, but it turns out was being allowed to handle and shuffle the cards himself, a, a no-no to anyone with a modicum of magic knowledge. And a magician came in and, of course, sort of stopped that and observed and so forth. 
And, of course, the phenomena dropped to chance, as, as I recall, pretty pretty close to, to what actually happened there. So this is, this is very common that there's a whole, really a whole body of literature about this kind of effect of the skeptic uh, causing trouble and people only being able to do things under, you know, favorable conditions where <laughs> it's, in the case of Enfield, you know, the, the voice that uh, ultimately was traced to, to sort of amateur ventriloquism by Janet, uh, the voice wouldn't speak unless uh, the girls were allowed to be in the room alone and the door closed. What what does that tell us? Yeah, there's a, the, the book is full of cases where they leave recording equipment or photography equipment uh, lying about the house trying to catch things because the things just won't happen when people are watching. It, it's really one of what I would call several markers that if you step back and look at the infield case, and I tend to look at it as a as a magician. That is, I'm aware that that a, a kind of magic trickery is going on where somebody's performing something and doesn't want the mechanism to be seen, i.e., that maybe I've secreted something in my hand, and when you're looking slightly the other way, I flip it from behind my back, and then I say, "Look," and it appears to be floating in the air or something. Uh, simple, simple tricks. But there are markers, and I, I would just mention a few of those, for example, that that indicate a deception or, or, or that favor the hypothesis that this is nothing more than the tricks of young girls. And one marker would be the, the fact that the phenomena tend to center around Janet. Um, also occasionally around Peggy. So when Janet couldn't have done it, maybe Peggy did. So that's one marker, that, that fact that uh, we, we, we have things happening when Janet's available and, and at the center of things and causing things. A second one would be that the phenomenon doesn't want to be seen, just as we just talked about. Another example of that in, in the world of the paranormal would be the crop circle phenomenon. And I did a study that showed that the crop circles didn't seem to want to be made and were made mostly at night in distant fields. Um, a third uh, marker with the infield case would be that the various mischief and the phenomena seem to be of a type a child could and would do, um, kind of in the nature of mischief and pranks and and um, play acting. Uh, another one, uh, I'm, I'm not counting so much, but uh, uh, a fourth, say, maybe, uh, and there's actual evidence against the genuineness of the phenomena. For example, the levitation photos clearly show not levitation, but, but Janet using the bed as a trampoline and jumping in the air. And you can see this in, in uh, I've done a, a sketch showing that. Um, the expert opinions, another marker would be the expert opinions of a ventriloquist and a magician in the case, and they were uh, sure that, the, that it was ventriloquism and, and magic tricks. Um, another marker would be tests. Uh, when the girls were tested by separating them, um, when they were put in separate houses, then there was phenomenon at each house with Janet and Peggy. 
Well, that's pretty revealing. And, and further to that point, uh, when the both girls were absent, nothing happened. So that's a pretty pretty strong marker that that uh, we can use. And then, of course, ultimately the girls confessed, and then, of course, Playfair and Gross got them to retract their confession. But when you look at all those, those are those are more or less separate markers to look at the infield case, uh, however many I listed there, and that really suggest and, and corroborate each other so that you have a, a number of, of factors, any one of which you might want to argue against, but the more of these factors, these markers you have, the more you you have the characteristics of uh, what I've named and uh, Robert Bartholomew has picked up in, in our book and used it, uh, our book, uh, American Hauntings, what I call the poltergeist faking syndrome. And that is where someone mimics being a poltergeist, play acts and does the tricks and things necessary. And you can show it in case after case after case. And infield is just a fairly typical good example of that. It is interesting to me that uh, Playfair makes a, a lot of, uh, makes much ado about the fact that Janet didn't know much about the paranormal, but explicitly mentions that other kids at the school were telling her about funny things that had happened that sounded like poltergeist activity. Uh, and that there were other famous poltergeist cases in the news around the same time. So she's certainly not yes. working in a vacuum. Right, and and I have this notion that, you know, poltergeists could be independently invented in remote rural areas of Europe, for example, without necessarily um, hearing about uh, other cases, uh, because... Unless you actually come out with the word poltergeist or some particular uh, parapsychological hypothesis of the same or something, um, all that's needed is for a kid to really anywhere, anytime, 16th century, 18th, pick your time and place. All you need is a kid to act up. We have examples that look just like this. They, the kid acts up. And then, but but secretly, and when the family says, you know, little Jimmy, did you do that? And the kid denies it. And pretty soon the kid finds that the parents, say, or the adults in the room, are very, very credulous, very, very gullible, and may themselves attribute something to demons or mystical forces or or mischievous spirits or something. And they're doing the work. The kid is is, is just acting up, and the the, the grown-ups are putting a you know a dogma on it, uh, as as was done at Enfield. You know, there was people were claiming some were claiming it's poltergeist phenomena, but others suggested demonic possession. Uh, you could maybe put several other labels on it, and so. I that's not a very good argument to say that uh, they were totally unaware of poltergeist phenomena, and uh, yet here it was happening. I, I just find that really pretty silly. 
And I find Playfair in general just very silly. Uh, Playfair seems to, as I said, start with the answer, work backwards to the evidence, to be engaging all the time in confirmation bias. He's got this belief, and um, evidence just doesn't seem to support it, so he, he... says, well, but what if, and maybe there's this, and here's, a, here's something you can't explain, no matter how many other things you have explained, and he's always doing that. And when he does that, he's, he's really engaging in the classic uh, argument from ignorance, where he's trying to say again and again, well, we don't know what could cause this, doesn't appear to be innocent little Janet, and probably isn't this or this, and so it must be must be something paranormal. And he's just engaging in, in the typical argument from ignorance, which I've argued is the basis for the paranormal. This is how the paranormal is promoted again and again, all the areas of the paranormal, based on basically negative evidence. They don't have positive evidence for anything. They just have this, we don't know, therefore, which is illogical. And pervasive. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's great. Um, this is exactly what I was looking for. Is there anything else you want to add about Enfield? Well, um, maybe not particularly. We've covered a lot of my pet peeves. And um, I just think we need to get a look at it and apply to the case, the principle of Occam's razor. This is a good case, I think, to apply that to, that we're basically developing two hypotheses. One, that it's um, a case of uh, some kind of mystical, invisible force, such as a poltergeist or a demon, something of the sort. Or it can be explained as, normal phenomena and i.e. the trickery of of uh, schoolgirls and i would argue that first of all the simplest hypothesis the one because uh, the second one i mentioned is does not depend on the assumption that there really are poltergeists or demons so when you say the occam's razor prefers the hypothesis with the fewest assumptions that would be that, well, schoolgirls can do tricks, and tricks could theoretically explain everything going on there. And then I would say secondarily that we have basically a lot of corroborative evidence. So we know from the indicators, the markers I gave earlier, and the confession that uh, that is the hypothesis. So it is clearly... It is clearly what I, I use the terminology, I advanced this years ago in my doctoral dissertation. Uh, this is the preferred hypothesis. And you can show logically and reasonably that it is a preferred hypothesis. You may not like it, and Playfair doesn't, but you can't just say, well, I don't like your hypothesis, or it has a minor little, you know, I'm quibbling over it or something. You have to either show to get rid of it, you have to show that there is an absolutely fatal um, problem with the hypothesis, and nobody has ever done that with Enfield, and Playfair can't do it. Or you show that 
there is a better hypothesis. You must replace the hypothesis you don't like with the better one. And again, we pretty much have the best one that can be found, um, and that is that it's the tricks of schoolgirls. So uh, from the basis of the scientific investigator, I would say that's it. Uh, the poltergeist case is vanquished, and uh, <laughs> science science is won again. Playfair is gasping at straws and is a, a desperate man refusing to give up. I, I think he's a fan of you, too. What? <laughs> yes, he doesn't like me. He said um, he, he was quoted as saying, you know, nickel can piss off, I think was the exact words. And I wrote a you know wrote a response back and said that I thought Playfair wasn't playing fair, but uh, um, you know name calling is is not the point. I I'm only mentioning kind of um, problems about him, not in an ad hominem way, in that I'm trying to use an you know an, an argument against him to somehow make my points. I don't need him at all to make the points I've made and to point out the markers that I've pointed out. I don't need him at all. I don't have to say, oh, he's a he's a bad person, therefore, you know, this isn't tr true. No, it's not an ad hominem attack in logic at all. I'm just, the negative things I say about him are by way of answering why are we still bothering with this case? And he's, he's, the, he's responsible. He's a very gullible man, and I don't say that to be mean-spirited. I just say that as, you know, just as, you know, factually as I would say that, you know, that piece of fruit is a mandarin orange. So I uh, appreciate you joining us again. And as always, if you find any monsters, please give us a call. But otherwise, we'll reach out to you again for sure about some other things that are uh, of interest to our listeners. Yeah, thanks for thinking of me. And uh, I have to say, you know, I don't, I'm not very good at finding monsters. I'm, uh, I'll say this in, an, in a moment in which I, I'm not as, uh, you know, as modest as I usually am. And you know that I'm one of the most modest people you've ever met. I've seen your modesty awards uh, many times. Oh, it's, oh yeah, it's, it's huge, <laughs> it's huge. But, and I don't like to talk about it, but in a, in a immodest moment, uh, I would say that I'm, while I'm not good at finding monsters, I'm pretty good in getting better at finding monster lookalikes. So I have some monster lookalikes we haven't talked about, and so sometime, you know, the Bigfoot bear and others. So we can talk again. We will have you back for sure. Monster Talk. You've been listening to the second part of our coverage of the Infill Poltergeist case on Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Karen Stoltzno. And I'm Blake Smith. Hopefully you now have a good understanding of the skeptical position on Enfield and the believer perspective as well. This is just a tiny sample of the extensive back-and-forth arguments surrounding this case, but there are a lot of links in the show notes. This two-part coverage started out with me expecting it to be about the Warrens. But then I felt that I really needed to tell as much of the true story of what went on there as was possible, and hopefully as fairly as possible. The Warrens effectively had nothing to do with the Enfield case. In the time since I started working on these episodes, The Conjuring 2 has gone from being a coming-soon feature to a 
available on DVD film. As a horror fan, I really enjoyed the film. As a fan of actual paranormal research cases, I hated how they changed the story. It's a fun film, and at the same time, I can't recommend it unreservedly because of how they take out Playfair and diminish the work of Morris Gross. Consider it a work of the purest fiction, and perhaps you can enjoy it. It does have some good scares in it, not the least of which is the producer's continued effort to apparently canonize Ed Warren. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed on Monster Talk are those of my respective guests themselves, or myself, or my co-host, depending on who's talking, and may not represent the official views of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. By the way, I believe all three of today's guests are featured in Karen's latest book, Would You Believe It? Links to which you can find on Amazon.com and in the show notes of our previous episode and in Karen's biography on our website. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you so much for listening. Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. As soon as you start lumping all the phenomena together, then you have a haunting. But if you look at each individual phenomena... Phenomenon. Look at the cases. Phenomena. Phenomena. Yeah. You know what? I got to stop phenomenon because I, <laughs> if you look at the phenomenon, do, 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 do. anyway, if you look at them, if you look at each individual peculiar happening, there, I fixed it.